Until Vladimir Zelensky came along, nobody had stood up to Vladimir Putin more forcefully and courageously than Alexei Navalny. A longtime thorn in the Russian president's side, Navalny has mobilized opposition to Putin, denounced his policies, and released YouTube videos exposing his corruption, including his alleged connection to a giant billion-dollar mega palace on the Black Sea. As a result, Navalny has suffered endless harassment, faced repeated criminal charges, and notoriously was poisoned in 2020 by a chemical agent widely suspected of being planted by the FSB. Last week, he spoke out in court against Putin's invasion of Ukraine, calling it crazy and saying it is the duty of every person now to fight this war. On Tuesday, in that same courtroom, he was convicted and sentenced to nine more years in a maximum security prison. We'll talk to Vladimir Ashurkov, one of Navalny's top aides and the executive director of the anti-corruption foundation Navalny founded on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So it's clear that Navalny has been targeted by the Kremlin and Putin for years now, that he's been harassed. He's been facing repeated criminal charges. Of course, he was poisoned, as I mentioned, most likely by this uh, a chemical agent known as Novichek, which is the same one the FSB used against uh, Sergei Skripal in the UK. But it's hard to separate out this harsh sentence from the fact that Navalny has also spoken out against the invasion in Ukraine, standing up in that courtroom just last week, denouncing the invasion and, you know, as I said, calling it crazy, calling on every Russian to speak out and oppose the war. Given the uh, relentlessness of the Kremlin's prosecution and what he has faced, this is truly a profile in courage. Yeah, I was going to say, not only um, has he spoken out on these these important principles and continued mm. to find ways uh, to rally the Russian people to oppose Putin by getting messages uh, to his lawyers so that they can then go out and put them on social media, but he's doing everything he possibly can to get under the skin of Putin himself, which takes a fair amount of courage. I noticed that not only did he call the war crazy, but he referred to Putin as an insane little czar. Emphasis on, on the word little. <laughs> on the little, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is a guy clearly with uh, brass balls and Im- impressive in so many ways. Meanwhile, while he's in jail, so many of the Russian intellectuals and of the opposition to Putin are, are fleeing the country. So, unfortunately, as tough and as incredibly brave as he is, the num- his audience in Russia itself is, is slowly but surely shrinking. And his ability to get his message out is the same as Vladimir Putin crunches down on all of the social media outlets that oppositional Russians have previously used. So it's it's a kind of increasingly grim environment there, though 
how long it'll stay grim is an open question. But, you know, amazingly, he's still able to tweet on his Twitter account. And after the conviction, he I, I think, tweets this I think kind he's yeah, I think he's I think he's what I read was that he's uh, when he meets with his lawyers, he's still allowed to meet with his lawyers. Yeah. He gives them the tweets and then they go out and put it on social media. So he has this kind of impish defiance, like after the conviction, he tweets nine years. Well, as the characters of my favorite TV series, The Wire used to say, you only do two days. That's the day you go in and the day you come out. I even had a T-shirt with the slogan, but the prison authorities confiscated it, considering the print extremist, which is kind of a dig on the fact that the uh, Kremlin has officially labeled his organization a extremist terrorist organization. Just one more dig. Alexei Navalny, the stringer bell of uh, (laughs) of Russia. (laughs) Um, Well, look, we got a great guest to talk about it. But before we go to him, Vladimir uh, Arshurkov is basically Navalny's one of his top aides, runs the uh, Anti-Corruption Foundation. But before we get to that, we had the uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings starting this week. Uh, Any quick takeaways you guys see? Well, clearly the uh, Republicans and particularly those who are thinking about running for president in uh, 2024 came in with a strategy to try to rough her up, not because they think they have any chance at all of defeating her. She's going to be confirmed and she will be confirmed maybe with one or two uh, Republicans but with a strategy to use uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings um, as a platform to either promote their own potential runs for the presidency or do other things to enhance their brand. And um, she's pushing back pretty hard. Uh, the, the main issue that they've come at her with is the idea that she was soft on crime as a defense lawyer, whether it was when she was defending Gitmo detainees in habeas cases or in some cases as a judge ruling uh, or handing out sentences to yeah, child the cr- uh, sex offenders. I was going to say the, the critique of Josh Hawley was about her rulings as a judge, suggesting that she was giving lower sentences to sex offenders than were mandated or, or recommended by sentencing guidelines. Now, I know there's been a lot of pushback on that, but that you know, obviously, it's a uh, inflammatory, explosive charge if it had a ring of truth to it. But I'm not sure it Which does. Which it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't have much of a ring of well, truth to it. Why not? Tell us. Well, I, I think most of the argument has fixed on a decision that she made when she was on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And it wasn't a decision that she made. It was a unanimous recommendation from the Sentencing Commission many of whose members are conservative or even arch conservative that recommended lowering the mandatory minimum sentence for a certain class of sex offenders. And, uh, you know, as soon as Hawley made this charge, a large number of uh, very conservative members of the legal establishment pushed back on Hawley saying it was absolutely fabricated out of whole cloth and was a, a baseless charge against her. So I think that, you know, Hawley running for president, potentially, uh, latched upon something that will get him kudos from the QAnon crowd and maybe a few hits on Fox News, but that doesn't really have the ring of truth. I I would also add that one of the things that this whole hearing has really demonstrated is how rare it is to have a Supreme Court nominee who has real world experience. You know, it really kind of jumps 
off the hearing that you've got someone who has you know represented real people and dealt with the kind of the real interactions of Americans in the criminal justice system uh she's the I think the first nominee since Thurgood Marshall, who's actually ever defended someone in a criminal case. Which means that she will be- Attacked for- Well, right, but the only member of the Supreme Court currently who has any experience as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, and it's it's kind of amazing that you know since Thurgood Marshall, we haven't had a Supreme Court justice who has that kind of experience when you think about you know how, how much we think of, you know the law is about- defending or prosecuting people who violate criminal statutes. Yeah. And the right the rights of individuals, you know, under the Constitution from kind of an overbearing government that yeah. seeks to throw them in prison. Uh, apropos of the conversation that we're having about Navalny right now. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, we're, we're really, you know, shaking our fingers and and railing against the Russian criminal justice system, which is throwing Navalny in prison for nine years on base on mostly baseless charges. And yet the idea that we would have a, a Supreme Court justice who has, you know, kind of really elevated the defense of people who are accused of being criminals is too much to bear in the United States, it seems. Bottom line. She's going to get confirmed. Right. right. So bottom line, barring any sort of like unexpected kind of outcomes from this hearing, she's going to get confirmed. If they follow the Amy Comey Barrett timeline, once the hearings are over, which will probably be Wednesday, tomorrow, you can expect to see her voted out of committee within about 10 days and then confirmed within 14 days. So within a matter of two to three weeks, we will likely see her vote on the floor of the Senate and her confirmed to this seat. Right. And the only question is how many Republicans will vote for her confirmation? I had previously said eight or nine, which got big pushback from you guys. Um, I'm going to lower that now to five or six, which oh is my God. maybe still oh my on God, the high side. Six. You can't name them. Name them. All right. Romney, Murkowski, Collins. Uh, Three. And then uh, Portman, Toomey, and Tillis. Okay. Tillis, no way. But no we're going to- uh, well, No way. Save. Yeah. No way, but we're All going right. to uh, we're going to check back in on that list. <laughs> yes, okay. What about Burr? Uh yeah, Burr too. He voted. Okay, for so now you're up to like right? six or seven. Yeah, that, now we're up to seven if we get those. <laughs> I mean, Tillis, I'll I'll give you. That's kind of might, might be a stretch. But, I mean, Murkowski um, is in a tough re-election battle. I don't see that happening. Um, I, I I thought that maybe she would, but I. I don't know. Um, yeah, and, um, and, 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 and to me are not running for re-election, so you know it's a gimme. Why not? We'll see. I mean, I think at the end Listeners, of the day, there's no check back in. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Now we got other stuff to talk about with our guest Vladimir Arshurkov, uh, the executive director of Alexei Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation. So let's get to it. All right. We are now joined by Vladimir Arshurkov. He is the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Foundation founded by Alexei Navalny. Vladimir, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. 
So today in court, Navalny was convicted and sentenced to nine more years in maximum security prison for allegedly embezzling funds from the anti-corruption foundation that you head. Your reaction to today's court verdict? Well, th this verdict was not given out uh, today. Uh, we understood from the moment that uh, Navalny was unlawfully put in prison a little over a year ago that uh, Putin intends to keep him there until he goes, basically. So, yes, it's a nine-year sentence. It's a bizarre charge that Navalny, who created Anti-Corruption Foundation, it's a Russian NGO. In It was created in the end of um, 2011, and which became the platform for our civil and political work. The charge is that he was stealing money from it when no bank records show that he ever took anything from there, not even the salary. So what is the purpose, you believe, of this prosecution of Navalny? Is, what is the message that is being sent here? And do you think that the events in the war in Ukraine and Navalny's outspoken opposition made things even worse for him than it otherwise would have been? Over years, Navalny became the most prominent opponent of uh, President uh, Putin in Russia. And uh, he has several things going for him that helped him to, to attain this position. So he's a charismatic leader. He is a good organization builder. And he has the moral authority because despite various methods of persecution against him, he uh, was able to continue his work. So this sentencing that we are witnessing, it's not the, the first example of persecution. His brother was sentenced to 3.5 years imprisonment in 2015. He was attacked with a green liquid by a state-sponsored agent and almost lost his eyesight in 2017. And uh, of course, in August 2020, he was poisoned in Russia by a nerve agent, which almost cost his life. So I think the, the Putin has planned the invasion of Ukraine long, long time ago. And uh, my theory is that assassination of Navalny was when he knew that things that what he will accomplish and he wanted to silence his most prominent uh, opponent, that didn't work. But Navalny is in prison now. Our organization is deemed extremist. The brutal invasion has been going on for a month. So that's the situation that we're facing now. Vladimir, given the fact that he was already poisoned once and almost died and widely believed to be the work of Russian intelligence, the direction of, of Putin, the United States has said that if he dies in prison, has said in the past, if he dies in prison, there will be consequences by which I think they meant probably tough sanctions. But that doesn't seem at this point that it would make much of a difference, given the fact that there are so many crushing sanctions on Russia right now. And we also know that other people, namely Sergei Magnitsky, who was investigating corruption in Russia, was, uh, was killed while in detention. 
So how concerned are you right now that Navalny uh, will be killed uh, while he's in prison? Very concerned. There is nothing that could stop Russian security services of assassinating person anywhere in the world, let alone in Russian prison, which is a brutal place. But, uh, you know, Navalny has defied death before many times. And it's really is sort of an epic story. His poisoning and then his um, miraculous recovery. And then this uh, phone call when he dialed one of the person from the assassin team himself, talked to him shortly after his recovery. And then despite all threats, he goes back to Russia, is imprisoned and still maintains the humor and moral stance from the prison cell and from the bench of the trial that he has uh, been undergoing now in his prison. Let me ask you about the state of the opposition to the Putin regime in Russia right now. Obviously, Mr. Navalny was one of the, the linchpins to that opposition. And yet the reports are that as a result of the sanctions and the war in Ukraine, there's a mass exodus of people from Russia right now who might have formed the core of that opposition. What's your assessment of the impact of the war and the sanctions on internal opposition to Putin right now? I think it's too early to say. The war has been going on for less than a month. Indeed, many people from the educated class, from middle class who can afford to leave Russia for good or temporarily, have started this uh, process. And uh, it's also developing against the backdrop of more and more repressive laws that are adopted uh, in Russia. For instance, you can get up to 15 years imprisonment if you disseminate so-called fake news about Russian army. So even people who call this special operation war and then they come to protests with the simple posters, they get arrested. So it's very hard to be opposing what's going on and put in regime right now. At the same time, the economic cost, which uh, is the result of this invasion, is starting to affect Russians across all incomes, across all regions. It probably will take some months for this economic cost really to sink in. And then naturally the dissatisfaction with the regime will grow and this will be the basis of new wave of protests, of new stage in the development of the opposition. Vladimir, I wanted to follow up on that because you recently said, we're quoted saying that the, the war is not popular and the economic decline is having an impact, and that it's going to bring forward the demise of Putin's regime. And I think you talked about this happening within maybe five years. But how do you envision that happening? I mean, is there going to be a, a coup? Is there uh, is the Russian military or his, uh, his uh, elite advisors going to turn against him? How do you envision that actually happening? There are plenty of political analysts who deal in uh, theories and uh, assumptions. I'm more a man who likes to to talk about facts rather than theories. I don't have the exact scenario and time frame for you, but I think a combination of dissent in the elites who have seen their lifestyles drastically changed, who have seen their fortunes 
decimated even the people in the political elites close to Putin. We've seen it from the video of Security Council meeting just a few days before the invasions. The people close to Putin were also visibly nervous about what was about to happen. So the combination of dissent in the elite and the mass dissatisfaction and rapid deterioration of standard of living among the mass population, I think this combination will result in a political crisis. And then that will in turn result in a change in how Russia is governed. I wish I could give you a more precise scenario, but it's not really possible right now. Just to be clear, are you calling for a coup? Well, I think any change of government will be beneficial for Russia and the world as a whole now, because a lot of people are saying, and it, it's di- difficult to you know pierce into Kremlin's decision-making mechanism, but a lot of people are saying that it was a sort of decision of one person, of Vladimir Putin. And it's true that Putin has been this architect of economic and political corruption that has been the modus operandi of Russian government for the last 20 years. And if he is removed, any person who comes in his place will inevitably not have the same level of authority and the same level of power. So he would have to account for interest of different people and business elite, political elites, the regional elites, the electorate. He won't be able to ignore what their real true concerns are. And I believe that will bring about the start of change of regime in Russia. You had said it would be beneficial for Putin to be removed from power. But are you calling on those around Putin now in the security services, in the military, to actively take steps to remove Putin from power? I don't think they need my calling. I think... uh, they will do what's in their interests. And I think you, there are many aspects in which this war is not really, is hurting their interests. The economic costs, obviously, the ability to travel heavily, have reduced now through sanctions. And um, just the, the probability of a nuclear catastrophe is also this people have children, in many cases, children in Western capitals. So I think, yes, of course, they they don't need my calling to determine that it's in their interest to get rid of the maniac and uh, start gradually working towards a new Russia. Could you explain uh, to our listeners a little bit about the judicial process there? And um, just from the experience that... uh, Alexei Navalny has had, and, and you've been able to see through this process. Um, I noticed um, that I guess I, I guess he called uh, the the judge in this case essentially called her a coward, Margarita Katova. And I saw in the story I was reading that she had just been promoted by Vladimir Putin uh, days before this recent sentencing. So, what kind of justice is delivered in Russia today, and what has Navalny's experience been in that sense? On political cases like Navalny's, it's all manually manipulated from the president's administration. There is no rule of law. There is no independent uh, court process. 
and the law enforcement system has for a long time been used for political persecutions of the opponents of the regime. I myself as a victim am a victim of that. My case is similar to Navalny. I was accused of stealing money from Navalny's electoral campaign in the elections of Moscow mayor in 2013, which led to me leaving Russia and applying for asylum in the UK. Now it's uh, applied to Navalny in a much bigger scale. So you ask me about the, the, the justice process. There is no justice process. It's all being, you know, the, the judge is a puppet of somebody sitting in Kremlin and determining what is uh, more politically expedient to give him nine years or 15 years. So I'm curious about the impact of the sanctions. And in particular, you live in a city uh, which probably more than any other city in the world has been impacted by Russian oligarchs, aside from Russian cities, that is. So in London, the presence of Russian oligarchs and billionaires is, is palpable. They've had a very significant impact on politics in the UK. Has there been any noticeable change in kind of the, the prevalence of oligarchical money or corruption in the UK in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine? Sure. Well, for, for years, we have advocated personal sanctions against people involved in corruption and uh, in human rights abuse. But it was a trickle before, not just in the UK, but in the EU and the US. And in most cases, people who were sanctioned were people in the security apparatus who rarely go abroad, who rarely have assets in the West, but the real cronies and wallets of Putin's regime were never targeted. And now, after the war, yes, there has been avalanche of personal sanctions against people, against prominent businessmen who have benefited from Putin's regime and who have been the pillars of the corruption in Russia, against a wide range of officials, against the members of Russian parliament. So, there has been a lot of sanctions. How quickly this will have effect on the dirty money that has been for years and decades piling up in London and in other financial capitals of the world, it's hard to say, but at least this process is starting. Tell us who, who are some of the, the top people that are being impacted by these sanctions right now, the ones in New York and London? Well, let's uh, take the example of uh, Roman Abramovich, maybe the, the, the poster boy of sanctions and of flamboyance related to Putin regime. So he got his money from a sale of a oil company that he privatized in the 90s for quite little money and then sold it for over 10 billion to a state-owned energy monopoly. So that's the source of his money which was at the time considered a corrupt deal. Now, he himself in a court proceedings in 2011 in London against another Russian tycoon, Boris Berezovsky, admitted that they regularly paid money to officials for business favors and for protection so that their assets are not taken away. It's, it's recorded in the court materials. So you now have this person who has been one of the pillars of corruption. And he tried to legitimize his wealth in the West. He bought a, a football club called Chelsea, which is one of 
most famous British uh, football clubs. He had some of the biggest yachts. He was living a very flamboyant lifestyle. And uh, even until recently, I was hearing rumors that he was used as you know, one of the wallets for clandestine operations of Putin's regime. So let's say there is a center in president's administration in Russia, and they need to finance cyber warfare, military operations in Middle East, in Libya, etc. And they summon prominent business people who are close to Putin, and they say, well, your homework for this year for you is contribute 100 million dollars to this slush fund. And, and I, I hear these rumors about people like Abramovich, you know, until quite recently. So that's how it works. And uh, it only makes sense that now the West is starting to clean up its financial system. Probably the premier example of the corruption that Navalny has exposed is the mega billion dollar palace on the Black Sea, Putin's palace. Can you tell us what connects Putin to that giant palace and what it's been used for? Has Putin been there? And how has the money trail worked to give Putin that giant structure? Sure. Let's start from the outside. It's a building that you can see. Well, we use drones to to obtain video footage of the building. We also got some schematics from uh, whistleblowers. So it's a building that cost over a billion dollars and it has never been populated. Nobody takes ownership of it. It is uh, owned by an obscure network of Russian private companies. It has been financed by people who have been close to Putin over the last 30 years. And uh, the financial flows with which this palace was financed point definitely to the close uh, circle of Vladimir Putin. In addition, this area has been designated uh, like a no-fly zone, which is only the status that's only awarded to state properties. So... You can say that, and, and uh, there is uh, also sort of offhand confessions of people who have been involved in the construction of this villa, that everybody understood that this was constructed for Russian president. So Vladimir, I want to uh, just bring it back to the current war in Ukraine for a moment and to kind of understand and clarify some of uh, Navalny's views, because in the in the past, I know he's been referred to as a nationalist. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his mother is Russian and his father is Ukrainian. Is that right? I've read that. You know, in 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 uh, Russia and Ukraine, it's all intertwined. Yeah. Part of his family does come from Ukraine, but in you know in Soviet Union, people rarely. Or many people didn't identify with uh, any particular right. kind of strength. So I would say he's Russian with some Ukrainian roots. Yes. Okay, got, got it. But I think he is was in favor of Crimea being part of Russia and actually didn't like the way Putin did it, but that he was, um, I think, advocating for a second plebiscite that would be a fair one that would eventually show that the uh, people living in Crimea wanted to be part of Russia. Is that right? Is that all right? And and just tell us a little bit about what his views are of where Ukraine 
fits into this larger, some of these larger questions, what, what he thinks should happen. Sure. The, your description uh, is not entirely correct. He was always against this, uh, the annexation of Crimea and against meddling in eastern Ukraine that until the war left about 15, uh, 14 thousand people dead over the last eight years. Um, so he was uh, always saying that these actions by Russia were not in the interests of Russia and this brutal redrawing of European borders not seen since Second World War is uh, a mistake. At the same time, he said that, well, in Crimea, it's uh, probably a genuine estimate that 70 or 80 percent of people were in favor of being part of Russia for various historical reasons. And um, complex problems don't have easy solutions. Just handing over Crimea back to Ukraine like a a stolen sandwich to to give it back does not really work with the territories where people have their voice. So it's an exact political solution of how this problem should be solved. It's hard to foresee now and now even harder than eight years ago, but it couldn't have happened without asking the people who live there what their opinion would be on this subject. So that that was his position, and he has been clear about that. And uh, we understand that this cannot happen until Putin's regime is in place. So his political will and political efforts were aimed at changing regime and Russia, and only a democratic Russia can be a responsible international player that would be able to you know, solve this difficult uh, problem. In the courtroom last week, Navalny said, it is the duty of every person now to fight this war. Do you expect we are going to see more protests on the streets, more opposition, more people speaking out against the invasion of Ukraine? Well, over the last month, it has become quite difficult and dangerous for people to express their views against the war, even to name this special military operation the war that it is. And um, we've seen over 15,000 people detained during the protests that have been going on since the start of the war. So it's hard to predict when the new wave of protest will evolve. But a combination of the news about casualties that are spreading out, which are, you know, it's uh, not easy for people, for an average person to learn about the casualties of Russian forces, which are estimated at over 10,000 people, and the atrocities against Ukrainian civilians, because this is not shown on media, on the publicly available media in Russia. Internet is the, the, the independent media sites are blocked, so you cannot access them without VPN. So majority of people in Russia don't really understand what goes on. Ultimately, these news will will spread out and the economic cost of this war will also be felt by every wallet and in every pocket. And then we can expect the new wave of products. So it probably will be months before that happens. But I think that's inevitable. 
So with Alexei Navalny now uh, sentenced to nine years in prison and you exiled in London, what does the future hold for your movement? Do you anticipate a time when you will be able to go back to Russia? I do indeed. And our strategy has been the same since we started uh, working together with uh, Alexei over 10 years ago. We understand that in a political environment like Russia, in an autocracy, the democratic forces are not strong enough to take the regime head to head because the political field has been raised for decades and our opponents have all the administrative levels of power, unlimited financial resources, the ability to control the electoral system, the court system. So our strategy was to build an organization, to recruit supporters, to send out the right message that resonates with the Russian population. And then when the system becomes fragile, when a political crisis ensues, we want to be the most powerful independent political organization that's pushing for change. And this will give us a seat at the table where the issue of how Russia will be governed at the next stage of its development uh, will will be decided. So this war, this aggression, I believe, will speed up the demise of Putin's regime. It's a tragedy. It, uh, it costs tens of thousands of lives. But I think it brings forward the day when when system in Russia changes. And I believe that our organization created by Navalny with him in prison, but with, with uh, our team now mostly operating outside of Russia, will be a part of that change. Well, on that forward-looking note, we want to thank you, Vladimir Ashurkov, for joining us on Skullduggery, for providing us with your insights at this uh, critical time for you, for Alexei Navalny, and for your movement. And uh, we know we'll be hearing a lot more from you um, in the the future, and we hope to have you back on the the, uh, podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you.